every culture the human voice. It's as basic as breathing. And so that connection to me, it's one of the most the foremost, you know, foundational forms of communicating. And so that is to me the why choral music or singing is so powerful. <laughs> Arts Engines. I am your host, Aaron Dworkin, and with us today as our guest, we have Dr. Eugene Rogers, who serves as the Director of Choirs and an Associate Professor of Conducting at the University of Michigan's School of Music, Theater, and Dance, and he is the newly appointed Artistic Director of the Washington Chorus, and if that were not enough, he's a two-time Michigan Emmy winner, 2017 Sphinx Medal of Excellence recipient. Of course, I'm very, uh, very proud of uh, that recognition he received. And he is a 2015 Grammy Award nominee. So Dr. Rogers, it is great to have you on the show. Hi, Aaron. It's so good to be here with you. Um, so, you know, I figured I would just delve in. People can, I always share, people can really delve into people in their bios kind of online. So I encourage all of our viewers to do that. Um, but, you know, one of the things and, and why I think the Sphinx organization, who is our co-curatorial partner, our creative partner for this show, uh, and really wanted uh, you to be our guest to talk about especially issues surrounding programming. You have programmed some phenomenal works. And I thought I would just start right off the bat. One of those, of course, is the seven last words of the unarmed. And I'm just wondering, especially for our viewers who may not be aware of it, could you first just kind of share what 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 is the work? And then I kind of want to delve into the programming aspects of it. Sure. Uh, Seven Last Words of the Unarmed is a multi-movement work originally written for uh, tenor and bass ensemble with chamber strings and piano uh, that basically uses the last words and correspondences of uh, Black men or young men who were killed before their time by authority figures or police. Joelle Thompson is the amazing composer of that work and I had the real honor and privilege of working with him and championing that work. Uh, so that's that that work really changed both of our lives in some way. And so uh, and honored that it has had now I feel like it's getting its due um, due recognition for the powerful message and work that it is. So in terms of programming, um, what made you decide to program it, to, to do the work? Was, was it risky? And, and, you know, kind of keeping in mind that, you know, a lot of our viewers are either artists who want their work programmed or are those leaders out there who may not have taken certain programmatic risks or things like that, or may not be programming works that have certain types of social impact. So just wondering kind of your thinking as a leader in terms of why did you program it to begin with and were there risks? Sure, I mean, just in general, programming to me, uh, I think the sky is the limit with programming and we really limit ourselves when we only go to the status quo. Uh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm always a fan of trying to find new voices and emerging composers. You know, Joel was only 25 then when the work came to me and really he wrote it never to be performed. Uh, and so I, I have to be honest, when I first got the work, I sat on it because I wasn't sure at that time, 2015, you know, Black Lives Matter was not as universally recognized as it is now. And so after I couldn't get, I couldn't step away because the work spoke to me on so many levels. First and foremost, as a musical work, it was absolutely brilliant the way uh, Joel used so many different compositional devices to set those words. But then as a, a man of color, African-American man, it just grabbed my heart. And I, I realized if I was going to program this work with a group of individuals who are not men of color, that we had to find the universal connection. And once I found that and the students were on board with that, with me, I knew that we could go on that journey together. And even though some, some people said, you know, why would you do this work? I just believe if you can find the commonality and, and the message that unites us all, and for this piece it was loss, loss of life, regardless of how it happened, we all can at least agree that any life that's lost is something uh, to be mourned, right? And so with that, we forged ahead with our students and we framed it love, life, and loss. And the response really was overwhelmingly positive. And of course, there were a few dissenters, but for the most part, it was very positive. Awesome. And do you kind of have, you know, a set of criteria or framework when you look, you must, of course, you know, probably get, you know, barrage with people, you should do this work, you should do that work, do my work. Um, is there kind of a set of criteria or a process you go through that, for example, enabled this to happen, but, but that you approach really all work with? I, I that's a great question. You know, Aaron, the first criteria is, is it ec musically excellent? Uh, I, I, that for me, you know, I, if you're only trying to push an agenda, that doesn't matter, but that was never the goal. You know, so it has to have merit musically. And then what is this text? You know, this text was very specific, short and direct words, right? You know, but oftentimes, you know, say it's the caged bird sings. Obviously that text stands on its own. This text stood on its own because the, how can you argue with their, their last words of correspondences, right? It, that it is what it is. And sometimes it is, painful. Sometimes it is hopeful. Mom, I'm going to college. But the music matched the power of the text. And that's the process that I personally go through whenever I'm choosing a work, is that it first has to have that. Do you also, do you say, do they communicate those stories in a, in a relatively succinct amount of time? I think sometimes things go on and on and on. And it's like, you know, if we had just like five minutes less of that music, it would be perfect. And I I think that's one advice I give composers, you know, get in there and get out, you know, that people want more always. And so I have to be honest, those are probably the three. And then I have to th I think about connection with my community, you know, uh, how can I, if they're not immediately already committed and connected to this idea, this message, this work, how can I together create some, a message or uh, find a theme where we all can connect audience wise, the people who are performing, because I think performers have to tell the truth on stage. One of the things I tell my singers is, 
you, you have, if, whether you believe these words or not, we have to believe that you do believe them as a performer. And I, I, I refer to it as telling, tr telling the truth. And so I think we have to also be very, um, be, know that our community, our singers, the performers are able to do that, or you're able to get them to that place as well. Awesome, awesome. So, you know, sometimes I think about, and you know, I've spent most of my life as, a, as an instrumentalist, as a violinist, but I always have to admit that there seems to be this power or impact when, when I go to a choral concert. It, it definitely does something to me, the human voice. And I'm just wondering for you, how do you see that? And do you see kind of a, a difference between what you're able to do and kind of architect artistically with a chorus versus things that are done with orchestras? Well, you know, I, <laughs> I'm very honored you asked this question. I also would say you forgot to also mention our, our work together through Exigence, my baby, uh, which is, uh, and, I, and that group was really partially created because to me, the stories that can be told through words. I think, you know, the music to me, the, the, the quality of music must be the same as any orchestral repertoire, in my opinion. But the words, the stories you're able to tell, I think the connection of the eyes of the voice, the person who, who's performing, there's no separation really between you and that singer and the communication of those words. Uh, and think about every culture. Every culture may not have a violin or a trumpet, but every culture, the human voice, it's as basic as breathing. And so that connection to me, it's one of the most, the foremost, you know, foundational forms of communicating. And so that is to me the why choral music or singing is so powerful. And if you think about a really phenomenal voice and how that one singer with training can cut over an entire orchestra, I mean, there's something very powerful about the overtones. Not, that's above and beyond the text and the communication. Wow, awesome. Well, of course, you mentioned Exigence, which you are the founder of, a Sphinx Ensemble. And that brings me to one of my questions that I wanted to also raise with you to shift gears a little bit, which is, kind of this sense of you're both a, an, an artist directly um, and leading ensembles, but you're also an administrator leading all of these choral activities at you know, one of the top music schools and art schools in the country. Um, but now you're also an entrepreneur because you're literally creating something out of nothing. And I remember when you first came with the idea of Exigence uh, uh, to Sphinx and to look at those partnerships. Can you talk a little about where, where does that come from? You know, the, a lot of times people are settled at, well, I've got this, you know, my, my conducting gig, I've got my teaching gig, I've got, well, why did you feel the need to create something else and what was the purpose behind it? Mm, gosh, thank you. That's a, first of all, the, the, the group was completely inspired by the Sphinx mission. I mean, that you must know that. Uh, also, I was, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Lee Pringle and the color of music. That also was an inspiration. And so those two programs together, with, but more Sphinx, uh, because of my connect, long relationship with you all, um, I, I, I began to see when I th thought of professional choral ensembles, and we have some really phenomenal ones in the world as well as uh, in our country, but I didn't see professional 
professional choral ensembles where there were enough people of color, in my opinion, in classical music. And I, I just, like Sphinx, that's just not the truth. That's, you know, that's the, I know that that's part of what we're doing is celebrating the power of diversity in the arts and really, I think really just people saying that the talent's not there, the skill level's not there, that absolutely is not the case. And so I was so honored when you all agreed to embrace my idea and, and to partner with Exigence because to me, the everybody's not gonna be at the Met. And so what about all of these talented voices who maybe won't be a solo singer at the Met? And so, for, but they're not necessarily working because maybe they don't have this sound or that sound. And Exigence really tries to highlight the diverse talents that really lie within our communities, not only as operatic soloists, but also gospel, R&B, folk music, you name it, from all of our communities. And so uh, that's, sorry it's a little long, but that's the reason I felt strongly. No, that's awesome. And you kind of touched on another thing, which also kind of feeds into this whole programming idea, which is genre balancing. <laughs> bending, those types of things. How do you look at that? You know, because there are some people who, you know, feel like they're very purist, traditional, only straight classical, only this particular type. Other people are like, well, let's bring in a little gospel. Let's bring in some jazz. Let's bring in hip hop. Where, how do you see that? And, and in your various roles, um, do you feel a different level of flexibility or ability to kind of explore different genres? Well, the good news is um, I am working with organizations who have fully embraced who I am. <laughs> because I, you know, I just believe there's only two types of music. I think it was a Duke Ellen or Louis Armstrong that made that quote, I don't remember now, that there's only two types, good and bad. And I really believe that. There's only two types of music. And for me, as long as the music uh, communicates, has message, the text is equally um, powerful. Uh, and if the, the group that you're working with is telling the truth and can perform that well, why not? And if I don't have the skill set, I'm gonna bring in experts to work with me to highlight that. But I don't wanna ever limit the offerings that I'm able to bring. At the, with the Washington course, we're starting a mahogany series that will highlight the diverse voices from the Black, Latinx, and American Indian communities. And that, that group will be asked to sing and perform styles that maybe are not typical of a symphonic chorus. But we'll have experts in addition to what I'm able to bring. At the University of Michigan, a, a huge part of our training is, yes, symphonic works, but we also have a part of that also repertoire of all the things, the other, that sometimes people don't even get to because myself and the students believe in this idea that good music is good music, at, regardless of the background. So that's, that, you know, that's how I feel about the, the repertoire range and abilities. Awesome. The, you know, you bring up students, which I think is interesting. So you have this uh, kind of cross section where on the one hand, you're working with students. And um, on the other hand, you have other settings where you're working with professionals. Mm -hmm. um, and do you take a different approach or do you feel like you have different responsibilities or a different role when you're leading students versus professionals? 
Um, first of all, I, I believe the connect, human connection needs to be there regardless of age uh, and regardless of situation. Um, I think that's first and foremost, because, you know, if people believe in you and feel like you care for them, there really is nothing they won't at least try to do. I, I think that that goes across the board. And so I the only probably one of the biggest differences is the amount of time, you know, with the unit with my grad because I mainly teach graduate students at the University of Michigan. So they're all professionals or people, you know, who are trying to become professionals. Um, I have a lot of time with them, you know, more time than probably some of them would like to have with me. But you know, when you're working with professional ensembles, often, especially like ours is a project based ensemble, we get together for four or five days, we may be learning a whole new program, and, and we're out the door with performing. So the expectation of ownership of you need to come, you know, ready to go, have your notes learned, and let's get right to the music probably is the biggest difference, but the expectation of excellence, you know, inclusive excellence is the same. I don't care uh, what level, even with the Washington chorus, the excellence is excellence. And to me, it's up to the onus of the conductor to choose what's right for that community so that that excellence is achieved with human beings being and their spirits being in mind. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's awesome. Unfortunately, we are just about out of time, but I also wanted to, you know, you talk about all of these issues, programming and everything, and, and I've had the opportunity to, to see it personally. You are so passionate about what you do and about our art form. And I'm just wondering, A, where does that come from initially? <laughs> and the second part of that is, how do you maintain it? Because some of us, we get that initial inspiration, we fight, we, we try and build something or do something, but then we can't help. It kind of fades, you know, it's just <laughs> tough. But you, it seems like there, today, I see you as more passionate than any day previously, and it just seems to be an ongoing thing. So I'm curious, where does it come from and how do you sustain it? Wow, that's a... That's a million dollar question, sustaining it. Uh, I know you want me to be succinct, so I will try. <laughs> I will say, first of all, I have made my hobby my career. I mean, I love music and I love people and I would do these jobs if there was not even a paycheck. And please don't tell my bosses this. But that to me, when you get the chance to work with people who are interested in being together and you working with great, great music. I, I mean, that for me feeds my soul. And, and I could do that all day long, really, if the combination of that. And of course, having so many different venues through the Washington course, you know, Exigence and the University of Michigan. So I feel like I get different perspectives at different ways to communicate the art form, and that also helps. And sustaining it, to be honest, Aaron, I think the way to sustain it is constantly um, making sure you're doing it because you love it. And when you don't love it, you need to find something else to do. And I'm committed to that. I also believe taking time to take a bike ride and have a great meal and just be with friends, you know, that I, I, I've tried to find a little bit of heaven every day because I, and that varies. Sometimes it's a podcast, sometimes it's a blog, you, who knows? But that is imperative. We all need a little bit of heaven every day. And that for me is in tandem with doing what you love is how I hope to sustain this passion. Wow. 
Dr. Eugene Rogers, you are truly one of the great arts engines who is powering human creativity in our field. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you.